0: We're kind of coming to an interesting section this morning. We're going to do just two verses this morning. And uh, Paul, right in the middle of this letter to Timothy, just kind of drops this, like, major doctrinal anvil. Like, just, like, right in the middle of the letter um, that I think we need to spend some time on this morning. I think it's going to be helpful to us. Um, And so we're going to be looking at um, the Bible, which I know doesn't sound strange since this is what we do every week. But uh, more specifically, like, what is it that makes the Bible the Bible? Uh, Because here at Harvest, we love God's Word. We love the Bible and everything about it. Um, Anything else in the world pales in comparison uh, to God's Word. Yes, uh, we love it more than Ted Drew's on a hot summer night. Uh, We love it more than Sugar Fire on Sunday afternoon. Uh, We love it more than the Cardinals, even though they are going to play. Amen. Um, More than the Blues. Uh, We love it more than Marvel movies and Netflix. We love it more than political parties or issues. We love it more than camping or going to the beach. We love God's word because it's from him to us, because he reveals himself to us, because God wrote a book. Just think about how amazing and awesome is that, that the God of the universe would take the time and the consideration to write a book for us to be able to know him. One of our pillars here is unapologetic preaching, where we seek to proclaim the authority of God's word without apology, because we believe that exactly what he said is exactly what we need to hear. Nothing more, nothing less. And the good news is, as we look at the letter of Timothy here, Paul also loved the Bible, and he's going to tell us why in this passage, uh, exactly why, and it's going to be this reason the Bible is God's powerful, profitable, and purposeful word to me. The Bible is God's powerful. I want you to, I want you to, to let these words sink in this morning. I think sometimes we take it for granted because you're in church all the time, and we have access, and we, have, we miss the, the importance of God's word. It is the powerful, profitable, purposeful word to me. In my walk with Christ. So with that in mind, look with me at verse 16. Where Paul writes this. He says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The first thing I want to show you in the text this morning is that there is a powerful author. Author behind this book the first two words of verse 16 are simply all scripture and for timothy in the immediate context when paul was writing for him all scripture would have been basically just been the old what we know as the old testament today right the jewish writings is what he would have had at that time the jewish canon however throughout the new testament that we have now we see that there are several places that show that the early church during timothy's time already considered Many of the writings of the apostles to be equal to and part of Scripture, even before it was put into the New Testament format. Let me give you some examples of that. 2 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16, Peter writes this, he says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, talking about Paul, right, also wrote in his letters, like the one to Timothy, to you according to the wisdom given him, right? Right? given by the Lord as he was writing, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, amen, um, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, but catch this at the end, as they do the other scriptures. right, so he's comparing here Paul's writings, Paul's letters to the other scriptures as if they are equal in coming from the Lord. Another place we see this is actually in 1 Timothy, the first letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, verse, chapter 5, verse 18, it says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So Tim, or, um, Paul is quoting an Old Testament scripture right there, and then he says, and the laborer deserves his wages. But that's actually a quote of Jesus from the book of Luke. And so here, Paul is already quoting the book of Luke next to the Old Testament as if they are both equally scripture. And so we see that when Paul says all Scripture here in this verse 16 for us today, he is talking specifically about the Old Testament to Timothy, but he's also in this way of thinking for the the New Testament church, they would have thought about it also including the apostles' writings, and certainly for us today who now have those canonized in the New Testament. When he says all Scripture, he means all of our modern-day Bibles. And so I, I want to just take some time this morning because I know that There's a lot of questions today in our culture, in our society, about the relevancy, the authority, the place that the Bible has in our lives. And so if you can just bear with me for a little bit this morning, we're going to do a little bit of a little academic deep dive this morning on what are the scriptures and why do we hold them the way that we do. Can we handle that this morning? Can we go to school for just a few minutes this morning? Is that okay? Everybody good with that? Okay. So the first question I want to answer is what are the scriptures? when we talk about this phrase in the Bible? Well, it, it, Scripture is synonymous with Bible, and Bible simply comes from the Greek word for book, right? And so when we talk about the Holy Bible, it just means the holy book. Um, but actually, the Bible is a collection of writings or a collection of books, 66 books to be exact, all combined into one book or almost like a library of books is really what the Bible functions as for today. What's interesting, though, is when you look at the entire Bible, it was written in three different languages over a period of more than 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors on three continents. That's a lot of diversity. That's a lot of different opinions and perspectives and backgrounds and And yet, with all of that difference in the human authors, yet there is perfect unity and perfect continuity across all of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Pointing to the fact that there was a greater author above them that was writing this book. And we see that most explicitly in the roughly 300 Old Testament quotes uh, that are in the New Testament, where it's connecting the two books together, and almost 4,000 allusions to the Old Testament in the New Testament writings. And so that's what we talk about when we say Scripture. We're talking about the Old and the New Testament as it was combined here in the Bible. So how did we get these Scriptures? Well, the Bible is composed of what we call the canon of Scripture. You may have heard that word before. And the the canon simply means it's a collection of books that the church has recognized as having divine authority in the matters of faith and doctrine. These are the ones they believe that God wrote and gave to us so we can understand the faith and to follow Jesus Christ. Now, we actually have, if you get technical, we have two canons in the Bible. We have the Old Testament canon and the New Testament canon. The Old Testament canon was basically just the Jewish canon, right? It was the books that the Jews had confirmed for their uh, religion prior to Jesus' coming. And when we look back and through history, Um, they not only affirmed the set of books, but then when Jesus came, he also affirmed that same Jewish canon um, that he held up as scripture. And when you look through the historical documents, there's virtually no debate by anyone in that time period as to which books should or should not be included in the Jewish canon. It was very much a settled issue for the Jews leading into what we know as the New Testament era. So it was a settled canon that they then passed on to uh, us as those who are now the church and following christ so that makes up our old testament but the new testament canon is a little bit different it was actually finalized at two different church councils in the new testament era but they didn't at these councils that some people think they got together and they just kind of picked and chose what books they wanted to put in there they weren't really so much choosing which books would go into the new testament but rather they were just affirming what books the church was already using and affirming as scripture across the different churches, and they just put them into an official list. Let me give you a quote from F.F. Bruce. He's one of the theologians that has wrote on this. He says, one thing that must be emphatically stated, the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formerly included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate authority and worth and generally, apost- I'm sorry, their innate worth and in general apostolic authority. And so the Council of Hippo in 393 and in the Council of Carthage in 397 were really just the churches coming together to put into an official document the books they had already agreed were indeed from the Lord and part of modern day scripture at that time. And they used three criteria. This is really the sticking point for a lot of people. How did they choose those books? How did the church decide those were the ones? They used three criteria to decide which books would be included in the New Testament canon. The first was the conformity to the rule of faith. In other words, do the teachings of these writings conform with the faith that Jesus Christ and the apostles taught to the church? Right? Do they sync up? Are there any contradictions? Are there any errors? No, then they can be included. As one of the criteria. Second criteria was, and I have problems saying this word, apostolic, apostolicity. Which basically means, were they written by an apostle? Okay, So they either had to be written by an apostle who was with Jesus Christ, or someone who was in the immediate context of an apostle, and basically writing on their behalf, like a Luke, right? who wasn't actually an apostle, but he spent so much time with Paul, he was able to then gather the historical documents and write the Gospel of Luke. And so they either had to be an apostle or in direct contact with an apostle, and be able to write in that way. And then the third criteria was the uh, Catholic- Catholicity, uh, which basically meant that the book was widely held by all of the churches. Right? It had nothing to do with like, what we know the Catholic Church should be today. It was just that all the churches in that New Testament era, in their time period, said, yes, we agree, these are the books that should be included. Okay? So those three criteria then got, it in t- got the books into what we know today as the New Testament. So then you have skeptics that, skeptics that want to say, okay, that's great, but what about all the other books, right? You've heard of the other books that were written that didn't make it in, and like, why aren't these books included? There's actually two categories of other writings that people want to talk about or debate that they think should or shouldn't be in the Bible. The first is the Apocrypha, and if you have any Catholic background, you're probably familiar with that term. Um, those are a number of books that have been added to the modern-day Catholic Bible, but they were originally Jewish writings. Those were not New Testament time, Jesus' day. Those were, they were written as part of Judaism well before Jesus even came on the scene. And the Jews never included those in their canon. Um, the early church never included those in their canon. They were not added to the Bible, the Catholic Bible, until 1546 when they were seeking to defend some of their doctrines against the teachings of the Reformation and Martin Luther. Things like praying for the dead, things like justification by works, they justify those doctrines from the books that they now call the Apocrypha that they've added into their version of the Bible. And so the reason we don't include those in ours is because, again, the Jews never include them in their canon, and we, uh, the early church never included them, and so therefore we don't see them as divinely inspired scripture. The second type of books that people want to talk about i will call the pseudo-gospels. Some people call them the lost gospels. These are the other books that they have found through archaeological digs that um, claim to be uh, a writing depicting Jesus' ministry or Jesus' teachings in some way. You've probably heard of, like, the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Thomas. And people argue, like, well, why aren't these included? There's a couple reasons. First of all, all of those pseudo-gospels were written over 100 years, most of them over 200 years, after Jesus was on the earth. They were not written by contemporaries. the fact that they hold the name of some of the apostles, like Philip and Thomas, they weren't actually written by Philip and Thomas. They were written by some other author later on claiming to be early on apostles. And so because of their fake authorship, because of their distance from the original uh, apostles and Jesus, they're not considered to actually be legitimate scripture. And so we don't include those, and we don't think that those are relevant for us today. And they actually weren't ever lost. If you go back and you read the early church fathers, they knew about all of them, and they wrote in their writings, these are not part of Scripture, (laughs) okay? Like, they were very clear, and they understood what was going on, and we have those historical records today. So, the New Testament canon was formed by the church, saying, these are the writings that we have seen as authoritative based on those criteria, but then the real press, I think, today for us, right? If we're thinking about, okay, if you're talking to your friends, neighbors, family who are have questions about the Bible, like how do you believe that? What do you think? How do, how can you think that that's really a, a thing? So let's answer this question: Can we trust today's scriptures? Can I trust the writing that I have in this Bible right here to be what was actually written back then from the Lord? Let me give you several pieces of evidence as to why I would say absolutely yes. First of all academic evidence, right? We can start there. As archaeology has continued to grow as a science and as a a, a mode of study, almost every archaeological dig that finds some place connected to the Bible always confirms what the Bible has already said, right? They're not finding contradictory information when they're doing these digs. They're finding things that are actually confirming what we already know to be true from God's Word, Also, if you go back to the other ancient Near Eastern historical documents outside of the Bible that were written at the same time, again, almost universally, they confirm and they align with what the biblical writings say. So they're backed up by other things. But maybe the most convincing, I think, is the literary merit that the New Testament has compared to contemporary writings. So I actually have a chart I'm going to put up here for you guys. I'm not going to go through all of this chart one of the things that we always look at for historical documents and literary documents is the primary source documents, right? Do we ha- how much do we have of the original writings? And when we look at this, these are all famous writings that you've probably been heard of in history class or literary classes or whatever. For example, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, right? Hailed as one of the greatest historical texts of that time period. The oldest version, the oldest manuscript we have of the Gaelic Wars was actually written 850 years after the original, right? So 850 years removed is the oldest manuscript we have of that, and so that allows for a lot of errors, right, and transcription errors and words getting messed up and things getting changed, and there are only 251 manuscripts of that original writing of the Gaelic Course. Compare that then to like Homer's Iliad, right, famous literary work. The oldest manuscripts we have for that were 400 years removed from the original writing of the Iliad and we only have 1900 manuscripts of that from the time period and then compare that to the New Testament writings the oldest manuscripts we have from the New Testament are only 30 years removed from the original within a single person's lifetime who could actually verify yes this was what was written this was what was there and we have over 5,800 original manuscripts of the New Testament to compare and contrast to one another to be sure that we do have the original words and the original writing that was done by the apostles and by the other New Testament writers. So just on academic literary merit alone, the New Testament is a more reliable document than all of these other documents that nobody else wants to question when it comes to history in our world, Right? So there's the academic evidence. The second, let me give you some historical evidence. Um, First of all, the Bible has stood the test of time. I mean, think about it. It's kind of crazy. This obscure book from this tiny little religious sect has grown to become the best-selling, most widely published book of all time. The fact that it has even lasted is a testament to its value. You can trust it more than any other current writing, more than any other current media. Because it's lasted for millennia. And men have staked their lives on it for 20 centuries, dying to affirm it and to preserve it because they understood and believed that it was indeed the true Word of God. Societal evidence. When we look back through the evolution and the development of society throughout the ages no book, no writing has had a greater impact on the development of societies than, across the globe than the Bible has. More legal, more social, more cultural ideas, more wisdom has come from this Bible, from this book, than any other book, and it has shaped every single generation. And lastly, as Christians, we can even disappoint and believe in the divine evidence. Most of all, we can trust our modern Bibles are still the true Word of God because of God's character. We know that He is good. We know that He is faithful. We know that He is sovereign. And so He is in complete control, and He guarantees, and He can preserve His Word to continue to give it to His church perfectly aligned with what He originally had in place. No reason to question. So another question I get sometimes from even believers, even people in the church is, okay, so, okay, great, we can believe the Bible, but what about all these different translations? Like, what's up with all the different versions of the Bible today? Like, how do I make sense of that? So let me just talk about modern translations for just a moment, okay? Um, First of all, most of our modern translations, especially the ones that are written from the original text, from the original Greek, from the original Hebrew, they can be trusted, okay? Because when we go back and we look at those original documents, Um, Less than 1% of the original manuscripts are at all in question about, okay, did it mean this or mean this? You know, a word got messed up here or a letter got misspelled. Like, which one is it? That's less than 1% of all the original manuscripts. And none of that 1% has anything to do with any major doctrines of the Christian faith or of the church. So we have a very reliable text to start from. And so any translations that come from that original text can also be reliable there's three major types of translations that you need to be aware of, though. There is a word-for-word type of translation, and the goal with a word-for-word is to seek as far as possible to capture the precise wording of the original text, right? So this word means this, this word means this, word-for-word translation. Common word-for-word translations that you're probably familiar with would be the King James Version. That's one of the oldest ones that are still in use today. Um, the new, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, new American Standard Bible is a word-for-word translation. And then the one that we most often use here at Harvest, the ESV, or the English Standard Version, those are all word-for-word translations. And that's why we use the ESV here, is because we believe, because it's a word-for-word translation, it gives us the best opportunity to know the original text and study it in the correct way. There's other translations, though, that are, also can be helpful at times. Uh, there is thought-for-thought translations, all right? This is, they attempt to convey the full nuance of each passage by interpreting scripture's entire meaning instead of individual words. So like they'll take a whole sentence or a whole thought and translate that rather than each individual word in order to try to make sure it's still as cohesive and more readable. Um, Very common, the most most popular one of this is the NIV, the New International Version. Um, Some of you might have the New Living Translation. Um, That's a common thought for thought translation as well. Or the CEV, the Contemporary English Version, are all thought for thought translations. The third type of translation, if you can call it that, is the paraphrased translation, okay? Um, And those are focused almost solely on English readability, like how easy can we make it for the people to read and understand what the Bible meant, right? And examples of that would be like the Message Bible or the Living Bible, which is different than the Living Translation, Okay. And so those are, again, they they have their place. They can be helpful when you're trying to get the sense of a passage and have an understanding of it, maybe a difficult section. But for serious study of God's Word, we want to go back to those word-for-word translations. They're going to be the closest to the original text, okay? And so when you're talking about the Bible, when you're talking about believing or understanding or or putting uh, trust in God's Word, we have everything that we need to believe that what we hold in our hands is the original words of God to us through all of these means that I've just talked about. So all of Scripture, Paul says, go back to the text now, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Literally, that could be translated just that it's God-breathed. Like, it comes from his mouth. It's the actual words of God, not words of man, which is another big sticking point for some people. Like, isn't this just something that a bunch of human guys wrote? No, no, no. Paul's telling us here, listen, it was not God and humans, like, collaborating to write this, right? It was not humans writing something and then God coming along and editing it after the fact. It wasn't God just giving general ideas and then the human authors trying to figure out how to write that down in their own words. It was not God dictating to them as secretaries, right? It was, it's not human writings that we then get to read and put our own divine meaning on today, These are the actual words of God that he breathed out and gave to us. And so, the question of who wrote the Bible, I would answer like this The Holy Spirit worked in and through human authors to record God's words. The Holy Spirit worked and moved through the mind and the hearts of human authors for them to actually write and record God's own words. That's what he means by God-breathed. In the theology world, we call this verbal plenary inspiration. There's a big, fancy term for you, okay? It actually just means verbal, the actual words of God, plenary, every part of the Bible is inspired, God-breathed revelation. So every word, every part is God-breathed revelation. That's what it means. And that's what Paul's talking about right here. And again, we see this both with the Old Testament and the New Testament, When you go back to the Old Testament, God used this same process to record the salvation history of the Jews and to speak through his prophets to give us the word of God. That's why you see over and over in the Old Testament, have you ever seen that phrase, um, thus saith the Lord, or if you don't have, you never were a King James person, um, it just says, the Lord says, or whatever, like, it's because God was actually speaking his words through the prophets. They were just relaying what he was saying to the people. Later on in the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, and Peter all affirm that the Old Testament was indeed scripture that was breathed out by God. In the New Testament, Jesus promised his disciples, he promised his followers that when he left, after his resurrection, when he went back into heaven, that the Holy Spirit would come and the Holy Spirit would communicate all of God's teachings and all of God's words to the apostles, and then in turn, they wrote them down so that we would have them as part of the New Testament. A couple of verses for you on that one, John 14:26. Jesus says, "But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you." That was the Holy Spirit working through them to develop Scripture. Verse uh, John sixteen thirteen and 14. It says, "When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whoever, whatever he hears he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Take what is mine, God's words, and declare it to you, so you can teach it to others and write it down, so we can have it as part of our New Testament today. So Jesus promised this is the way it was going to work, even before he left. And so, the last question is, why is the Bible our authority? Because that's really what it boils down to. When somebody wants to argue with you about the Bible and the legitimacy of the Bible, they don't really care about the Bible. (laughs) They just care about the authority that the Bible has that they don't want to submit to. So, why is the Bible our authority? Because it is the words of the perfect holy God. The Bible is what we call inerrant, meaning that it it is... Perfect and without error because it comes from the one who is perfect and without error. He cannot lie, he cannot mislead, he cannot falsify in any way. And so, God's word is perfect and true because he himself is perfect and true. It's a representation of his own nature. And it has been affirmed as the authority for the church throughout all of the ages, every church through time that has followed Christ has affirmed that this was the word of God from the Holy Scriptures, from the Holy Spirit. And hopefully for you, if you're a follower of Christ, that same Holy Spirit has affirmed that in your heart and in your life, as you have seen the word of God change you and impact you. And you've seen God work in your life through the power of his word, that in and of itself is enough for us to believe and know that this, indeed, is the authoritative word of God. We believe the Bible because God wrote the Bible. Because it's His authority written down and given to us. It has a powerful author. Next 2 we'll come a little bit quicker. So point number two is this. It's a profitable process So Paul says, first, it's God breathed, he gave it to us, and he says that it might be profitable. Now, that might be Paul's biggest understatement in all of Scripture, okay? Um, What he's really saying there is that God's Word is the most profitable, that it is the most profitable source for every part of your life. It is more profitable than an Ivy League education, it is more profitable than the hottest investment advice It is definitely more profitable than the latest self-help book that you can get at Barnes & Noble. It is more profitable than the daily news or the, the most trending psychological theory. It's more profitable than advances in technology or the newest scientific discoveries. It is definitely more profitable than the lofty, enlightened opinions that you read on social media. It is the most profitable source for your life. And Paul says that It comes to us in four ways. First, in teaching. Teaching is just what it sounds like. It's it's instruction, it's telling us the truth of life from God's own mouth. This is the primary way that God, that Jesus used God's word. When you look at the gospels, what was he doing nonstop? He was teaching. He was constantly teaching. Would that be in a big format where he's, he's preaching like this or just teaching on the side of the road to the disciples? He was using God's Word to teach them what is true and what is right. And so biblical teaching tells us what is right. Secondly, he says it's good for reproof. Some of your versions might say rebuke. Right? And that's really the idea here. It's that it's good to rebuke us in our sin. To confront us when we are not following what is right not in a mean-spirited way not in a vindictive way not in a punitive way but as an act of love that God loves you enough not to leave you in your sin not to allow you continue to walk and be hurt by the sinfulness of this world and so he loves you enough to call you out of that and rebukes you and calls you to repentance and for those of us who truly love God and are following Christ that's something that we will not shun at Or bristle at but rather we will receive and we will actually even desire that god's word would rebuke our sin reproof us so that we might turn and be repentant before the lord and so biblical reproof tells us what is not right right what's not right in our lives when we're sinning against the lord and his word third is correction this comes right on the heels of reproof because it's, this is when it works to restore us back to God. So this doesn't just tell us what we're doing wrong. It tells us how to get back right with the Lord. The goal here is always recovery and reconciliation. That The Lord wants to renew that relationship with us. And he leads us back to the right path so we can continue to follow Jesus through correction. Biblical correction tells us how to get right when we've been walking in sin. And then the fourth thing, the last thing, is training in righteousness. Equipping. The Bible is profitable to equip us with new behaviors and new disciplines and new ideas so that we can grow in Christ-likeness. So we can become more like Jesus. God's Word trains us to walk in spiritual disciplines like Bible study and prayer and Scripture memory and sharing our faith. And it also trains us in the character of Christ with the fruit of the Spirit. teaches us how to love God and love others so that we can walk with Him day in and day out. So biblical training tells us how to stay right. How to keep ourselves on the path of following Christ. And Paul says all of these things are profitable for us. Our youngest daughter Ava just started playing basketball and it's given me a chance to to coach her teams. And this is Kind of my, my first time really coaching, especially little, little kids like this, little girls. Um, and so I'm like, All right, we're just going to start with the basics, right? We're just going to do some dribbling and some passing and some shooting. Like, we're just going to hit the basics. And, um, and so they were doing good, and they're growing, and they're learning. But once we got to the first game, it became very, very clear that those three things were not enough. <laughs> they, they, they didn't know how to play defense. They didn't know how to get open for a pass. They didn't know how to rebound. Like, there was so much they just didn't have yet because we didn't have enough time to get to that yet. And so I had to adjust my coaching approach to incorporate all of those skills into the practice so that they could have everything that they needed to be successful. That's what Paul's telling us here about God's Word. If you're going to follow Jesus, you need all four of these things. You need all of the parts in order to be able to follow Jesus faithfully and successfully. If you lack the Bible's teaching, you're going to become frustrated because you won't know what target to aim at, what is right in following Christ. If you lack the reproof of the Bible, you'll never see change in your life and you'll just continue to live on in the same patterns of sin, feeling like a hypocrite because you know it, but you can't ever change anything. If you are lacking the correction of the Bible, you'll never experience the grace of restoration. You'll only experience the shame and the legalism of sin. And if you're lacking the training of the Bible, you'll be hopeless to stay on track and to keep moving forward and you'll keep falling back into the same sinful patterns of life. We need all four pieces working together. They're all profitable. And Paul says you need them if you're going to follow Jesus. So we submit to the Bible because God wrote the Bible. We submit to all of it. The reproof, the training, the correction, the teaching, we need all of it. We submit to all of the Bible because God wrote the Bible. And we need it. Lastly, is a purposeful outcome. He says, It is profitable in all these things for the man of God. That the man of God, he says. Now, just to be honest, that phrase there, man of God, is a specific phrase that Paul's using here. Actually, it comes from the Old Testament. And God would use it over and over again in the Old Testament to describe his spiritual leaders, right? His prophets, his, his leaders for the Israelites. He would call them, you know, the man of God. Um, and so Paul here is probably applying that to Timothy as a spiritual leader in the church, as a pastor, as an elder, right? So he's kind of having a, a specific use for that. But as we learned about a couple weeks ago, spiritual leadership, maybe it was that last week, God does not expect spiritual leadership in the church to be a vacuum. Right, where only certain people get it. Right, Like you and you, you get to do that, the rest of y'all, sorry, you're out of luck. That's not the way God works. He thinks about spiritual leadership and discipleship as two sides of the same coin. And he wants all of us growing in spiritual leadership so that we can be leading others and passing that torch, passing that baton of faith on to the next person so the gospel can continue to move forward. And so although he's talking to Timothy maybe specifically here as a pastor, as an elder, I think all of us, can apply this to whatever level of spiritual leadership that God is currently has you at and is calling you into in this next phase of life. And so he says that the man of God may be complete. Equipped, he says. That you might be prepared. That God's Word prepares us and equips us for the mission that God has before us for the purpose that He has for our lives. It enables us to grow in Christ and to walk in the Spirit. And it makes us ready to lead others to Christ. And to fulfill the mission of spreading the Gospel and making disciples. We talked about last week, it's not just enough for us. If you're only in it for your own spiritual well-being, that's short-sighted Christianity. We're growing in Christ so that we can lead others to grow in Christ. And he says here, the primary thing that we need in our lives, the primary thing that will be profitable to help us follow Jesus and fulfill the mission is God's word. Not the newest Christian book on the shelf at wherever. Not that those are bad. Some of those are great. Some of them are not great. Not the, you know, the newest worship music on Joy FM, although we love that at our house and we pump that too. Not attending church every Sunday. Not giving X amount of dollars. None of that is what's ultimately going to be most profitable for you to grow in Christ. Those are all good things. They're all things that we should probably be investing in and looking at for the Lord. But the most important, the most profitable thing you can have in your life to grow in Christ is God's word. That's what you need. That's what I need. Every day. And here's the crazy thing. We virtually have unlimited access to it. We have it in our language. Most of us have like multiple of these in our house. You have it on your phone for crying out loud. You have virtual unlimited access to God's word. And so therefore, friends, we have no excuse not to be growing in it. He says that it might, we may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's God's purpose for your life. That's the whole reason you exist. is to fulfill the good works of God that He planned beforehand that you might walk in them. And God's word prepares you for those good works, both personally, it prepares you as you walk out your faith and you follow Christ, and it prepares you missionally as you lead others to know and follow Jesus as you're passing on that torch of faith. This is our purpose. And God's word empowers us to fulfill it. We follow the Bible because God wrote the Bible so we want to know what it says, and we want to do what it says. The Bible is God's powerful, profitable, and purposeful word to me, to you. God wrote a book. Do you believe that today? Like, not just in your head, but do you believe that with your life? Do you live in such a way that you actually believe God wrote this book to you? Not just with, are you living on the authority of God's Word? Are you living submitted to the process of God's Word? Are you living on mission with God through the power of His Word? I believe with all my heart that God is speaking to you right now through His Word. Are you listening? Are you following? Are you reading? Stand with me. Let's pray let's respond this morning to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just come before you today, God, thankful. Thankful, Lord, that we get to do this every Sunday, that we get to come and sit under the powerful, profitable word of God. Lord, that you fill us with your truth and you fill us with your goodness, Lord, that you reveal to us who you are. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for even when you reprove us and when you correct us, Lord. Thank you for opening our eyes to Jesus and calling us to turn back to you through the word of God. Lord, we love you. We say yes. We say yes to you, Lord. We say yes to your word, all the promises, all the truth, we say yes, God. Take our hearts. Lord, fulfill your word in us today. I pray all this in Christ's name.